Welcome to Writers Talking TV, brought to you by the Writers Guild of Canada. I'm James Hurst. Today's podcast features a conversation with Stephanie Morgenstern and Mark Ellis. They're the creators of the hit series Flashpoint, which ran from 2008 to 2012 on CTV and CBS. Mark and Stephanie's fans have been eagerly awaiting their follow-up, and I'm happy to say the wait is over. X Company is a thrilling spy drama based on the true adventures of a Canadian-led covert unit that carried out bold and dangerous missions behind enemy lines during World War II. X Company premieres on CBC Television on February 18th, but tonight we'll be getting a sneak preview thanks to the good people at CBC and Temple Street Productions. We'll talk with Mark and Stephanie about X Company's creative evolution from pitch to post-production. Here they are. So, Mark and Stephanie, uh, so glad to see you guys. Um, let's uh, start off talking about X Company and, and uh, tell us a little bit about the genesis of, uh, of the show. Um, the genesis happened uh, over 15 years ago, so this one's been gestating for quite a while. Um, it began its, its life as a short film, but before it was a short film, it was just um, an idea that had sort of sprung up between the two of us. Um, I, I realized when I was sort of in my mid-20s that I have a fairly uncommon condition called synesthesia. Um, my, uh, a friend of mine had told me when I said, ah, I memorized that phone number by its color. He said, oh, I guess you're a synesthete. And I didn't know what that was. So I started learning about it. And synesthesia, as you'll know if you don't already know, is when one sense is crosswired in the brain with another sense. Sometimes it's just two senses. Sometimes it's multiple. Anyway, um, we began getting interested in, in looking up more about this and came across the case of a very rare case of a man who had five senses interlocked into one, and the accidental byproduct of that was perfect memory. And we thought, what would be the most dangerous, dramatic, horrible thing you could do to a person with this condition? And, and that would be to throw them into war. So we wrote a short film called Remembrance. Mm -hmm. um, what was interesting to us about that character, and of course this has evolved into something different, and now we're an ensemble-driven show, but um, when you look at somebody that has a perfect memory, you think that's what an incredible gift to have. Um, but, you know, the, the real man that that story is inspired by is, was felt that he was cursed by an inability to forget, and he tried all kinds of things to forget, and so that was that was why we chose uh, War, as Stephanie said, and, and we were looking for a Canadian war story that we felt uh, hadn't really been told before. And that's how we ran across uh, Camp X. And uh, Camp X was, uh, if you don't know, a spy training facility on the shores of Lake Ontario near Whitby. Uh, it was founded by William Stevenson, who was the original Intrepid. He was a man called Intrepid. And he uh, was a favorite of Churchill, um, and he created this spy training school, which was the first of its kind in North America. And he was playing the long game. And before the Americans entered the war, he said, you know what? These Americans don't have a spy training school. They have no CIA at this point. They have no uh, FBI. So they, they, um, so they opened the, the school December 6th, 1941. And uh, the U.S. declared war on Japan and Germany the following day. And there's a cool kind of story. I, I, I go on too long with this one because I love it so much. Um, but there was a, his, I guess one of his counterparts in the U.S. was a man by the name of Wild Bill Donovan. And uh, 
Wild Bill, the legend goes, was watching a football game at one point, and there was a a message on the loudspeaker saying, you have a telephone call. He went to take the telephone call, and it was like, you have to come and see the president. So he went to see the president, and Roosevelt said to him, we're going to declare war on Germany and Japan. And uh, Donovan said, well, you know, we're caught with our pants down because we have no foreign intelligence system in place at all. But I know a guy. And so not only did Canadians train at Camp X, but also Americans trained at Camp X. And the first five directors of the CIA all went through those doors. Many interesting personalities. Um, Ian Fleming, who wrote James Bond, of course. Paul Dane, who wrote Goldfinger. Uh, Roald Dahl. Um, and David Ogilvy, who David was Ogilvy, advertising pioneer. One of the original Mad Men. And so as the story evolved, um, we knew we had this character of Alfred, who was going to be this very unlikely hero thrust into war. Of course, with a perfect memory, he can be good at all kinds of things, you know, code breaking, um, memorizing maps, uh, knowing how to work his way through buildings, a gift with languages. Um, but we, 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 we felt that he needed to be protected, so we wanted to, to build other characters around him. And uh, Dustin Mulligan plays, uh, I guess, the uh, counterpart our, for David our, Ogilvy. That's right. Yeah, he's yeah. our token American. <laughs> and we have a, a British member of the team who you meet also, and the other three of the five are Canadians. Um, it was important to us to feature Canadians prominently in it because Canada was a great talent pool because of our languages, our multiple origins, and our allegiance to the, to the crown. Um, and so many of these people were from Toronto and all across Canada, and they were trained and often sent into the language, into the countries of the origin of their parents or their, their families. Well, and what's, what's amazing about the show, um, as you'll see, and, and I think everyone is going to feel uh, a real resonance because it, it really does affect all of us. Um, uh, the war, if, if, if not for the efforts of these people, we'd be perhaps speaking you know, another language right now. Um, and I know, uh, Stephanie, in particular, you, you, were, you were saying that uh, you have some personal experiences, um, or, or, or I should say your family has some experiences that showed up. Well, yeah, there are a couple of personal connections that I have to the, the story that you'll see in the, in the pilot. One of them is just the character of Aurora is basically um, an idealized version of myself. Um, my own heritage is part German-Jewish and part French-Canadian Catholic. Um, my hair is a fair color. I could pass for Aryan. So what would I have done in World War II if I had my fluency in three languages and if I'd had, like, uh, 50,000 times more courage than I do in real life? So she's kind of the, uh, the aspirational version of what I would have been if I'd been of that generation. But also um, there's a story that my, uh, my stepmother told that caught us off guard when we were already starting to write the show which was uh, she was a, a young girl of about seven years old in a small suburb near Paris uh, in the early 1940s. Her, <clears throat> her house was uh, used as a sort of a stopping point for uh, multiple families as they were, Jewish families as they were leaving France on their way to basically escape the darkening cloud. And after these multiple waves of exodus had passed through because they had a fairly large house, the Germans moved in. And they used it as a headquarters. And there was a young officer there who um, wanted to become her friend. He had a daughter her age, and he didn't want her to be treating him the way that you know you would when someone takes over your town and puts the wrong flags all over the central uh, square. And um, so she she was she thought she would show some some resistance to the powers that be. And one day, uh, she was in charge in her school of 
lining up all of the rows of chairs for an assembly. And rather than lining them up in straight rows, she lined them up in the resistance cross, which got her into some trouble. And she just wanted to make her mother proud of her. Anyway, you'll see what happens. That shows you, you will see that resonate uh, in the pilot. Um, could, could you guys talk a little bit about, um, it was very interesting, uh, you were talking about how uh, the character of Alfred, I think you started with him and then um, came across Camp X. Could you talk about um, the, um, how, your pitching process? Did you uh, go and write the pilot first? Did you uh, pitch it around, uh, go to producers? Talk, talk a bit about that. Yeah. Um, we actually, we wanted to develop this show uh, independently for as long as, as, as we could. And um, as we were coming off the end of Flashpoint, we were looking at what we wanted to do next. And this has been a story that we've been burning to tell for a long time. Um, there were, um, we're represented by CAA in the States, and they'd caught wind of the short film very early on in our relationship with them and knew that that was something that was, they thought would be of interest in the marketplace. And they weren't sure if it would sell as a period drama or if we, perhaps we might take that intriguing character and place him in a more modern story. Um, we felt deeply that it, it should be a, a period story and that it should be in the world that we originally conceived. Um, so we went to CBC um, with Bill Haber, who's one of the original founders of CAA, who, who for, you know, for some wonderful reason took us on as a pet project of his own. And he had a relationship with Trevor Walton, who was at the CBC then at the time. And so we just showed uh, CBC the short film and we talked about the kind of areas that we were thinking of going and moving towards. And uh, they, they greenlit uh, development really quickly. Um, Trevor then moved on from the CBC. Sally Cato came in um, and she, uh, she became a very enthusiastic uh, supporter of the project um, all the way from the first time we met with her and pitched her to, I think, you know, making sure that everyone opened up the coffers and gave the, the, the show the, the budget it needed because it's an ambitious show. Um, Helen Azamakis and, um, and Sarah Adams uh, have been great champions all along too. Um, but what we did that was a little bit different... Uh, was we decided to not attach a producer. We, we asked CBC if that was okay. They said yes. Uh, we founded our own uh, production company, um, and we worked uh, with our Canadian agents very closely to manage CMF applications and put uh, funding together independently um, and develop really the first four scripts uh, on our own. Um, that was the space over the space of about a year and a half, I would say. So we had a finished pilot script. We had a finished second script. We had the outline for a third script. And we had done six weeks in a writing room already with a, with a group of writers developing the season and scrutinizing where we might go. Um, when it came to the point where CBC was starting to ask us for a budget... We knew that we needed help. Um, we had help along the way. We were working with John Calvert, who was a line producer on Flashpoint and um, someone that we enjoy working with tremendously. Um, we put together a preliminary budget, um, but by that point we knew we had to get serious with a production partner that would be able to handle an ambitious show like this. And so we went to Temple Street. Um, and, you know, our... In, we were in a position, I guess, with the success of Flashpoint to, to be selective about the producers that we chose to work with. And what we liked about Temple was um, what we'd been hearing in the industry, which is that they are interested in creating partnerships, 
that they're interested in allowing their creators and show winners to take ownership of the show, not only creatively, but also in terms of um, the business aspect of how things are run. And, and it's been a great collaboration. And, you know, we, it was not fair because they had to put together budget and financing within about 10 minutes so that we could start <laughs> shooting. But that was, that was the path. That's fascinating. Yeah, Temple Street's got a great track record of uh, being Erica, Orphan Black, and, and now uh, X Company. Uh, great, uh, a great uh, production company. Um, so let's talk a, a little bit about um, about production because uh, you had to put it together a budget very, very quickly, and um, you shoot or uh, you shot a good portion of it in Hungary, uh, which is not unheard of. Uh, Canadian productions, you know, have often uh, gone abroad. But what strikes me as particularly challenging in this case is not only are you shooting in Hungary, you're shooting action in Hungary, and you're shooting period in Hungary. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about that and some of the challenges you, you, uh, you had to uh, deal with? Well, the period was one of the reasons that Hungary made so much sense. It would have been impossible. We, we shot the whole thing in there. We didn't shoot anything in Canada. Oh, so even... Uh, oh, even I assume... Camp- camp- oh, yeah. really? The whole thing? Yeah, it would have been very um, unwieldy to, to shoot the... Um, in the field scenes in Europe and then come back to Canada for the camp scene. So the whole thing happened uh, in Hungary. It kind of broke our hearts a little bit because yeah. we wanted to shoot CampX in Canada and that was the original plan, but just financially it was not. Well, it's very convincing because I had just assumed uh, it, it, it yeah. did. No. Some good CGI work there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, But for the credibility of uh, small towns in France, for the credibility of a city that has to pass for Paris uh, by the time we're at the uh, end of the season, um, there is just this... Uh, striking grandeur and beauty and also just kind of lived in and filthy quality that mm-hmm. some areas of, of Budapest uh, had, some areas of Hungary and some areas of Budapest have. Um, and there is nowhere in Canada that looks like that. We could not, I mean, there's only so far you can go in the distillery. You know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you do need to have those sloping cobblestone streets and those, you know, epic... Uh, and the colors and, and, and all of that really absolutely. It does speak to Europe. Yeah, yeah. Really. Yeah, so there would have been no way to get that kind of visual quality. I mean, I think it, I think it looks very beautiful. It looks very it striking. It doesn't yeah. feel like a... It feels ambitious because of how beautiful Hungary is. Yes. And w- were there any other countries you looked at? Well, we, we, we looked at Serbia very closely because we couldn't find a bridge in Hungary, and we had to go to Serbia to shoot it. <laughs> um, so that, and that was, uh, you know... I mean that's a whole other story. Maybe more fun after you see the bridge sequence in in this yeah, episode. Okay. But but no, it was we knew that there was just really good financial reasons to go there, and we'd seen, you know, location photos and like the. Looks and they of do it. they do tons of big budget action oriented shows. They do that. It's not a. This is what they do all the time. This is their bread and butter. Right, and in a way, it's a little bit like you know, in, in, in the the Canadian industry really grew strong because we did a lot of service production, and and that's really the case in in Budapest. And the the, the crew that we had was was certainly as, as good as our Flashpoint crew. And that being said, we we did bring over Keys, our, our continuity script supervisor. Um, Winnie came with us from from Flashpoint. You know, production manager, line producer, as I said, our lead director yeah, as our, well. Our lead director, David Frizzy, who was an incredibly important part. Uh, of the show as well. Uh, well, you, you mentioned David Frizzi, who uh, I remember from Flashpoint as well. Um, maybe we could quickly talk a little bit uh, about some Flashpoint-related uh, questions because it's such a big part of uh, of your career and, and, and what's brought you here. And um, I don't know how many people know this. Of course, all of you know a lot about Flashpoint, but you, what you might not know is it was their first gig, uh, which is crazy actually it really i mean it really is nuts this is the first thing they they wrote and created uh and it was 
uh, just an unbelievably huge success, as we all know. Um, maybe you guys could talk a little bit about it. It's a question I think gets asked a lot, but it's an important one. Um, in the era of co-productions, uh, could you talk a little bit about the U.S.-Canadian co-production aspect of Flashpoint? And, uh, and you know, it's hard enough to make a, a hit show in Canada, but you made a hit show on, on both sides. Um, and, and without alienating anyone, without pissing anybody off, um, you, so could you talk a little bit about that and, and, and maybe some experiences that you, you may, maybe helped you with, with X Company? Um, I think the starting point was we were making a show firmly rooted in Canada. And it was a show that was ready to shoot and ready to exist and ready to kind of proudly be what it was, even if the Americans had not become involved. We had a completed pilot. We had uh, a Bible, a detailed Bible. We had like a story plan. It was, it was already a pretty solid project that knew what it wanted to be. Um, and so when Bill and Anne-Marie, who were the executive producers uh, off the top, um, went to the States to pitch it, it was, we're making this show. This is exactly the show we want to make. Do you want to be on board? It wasn't a situation of, we desperately would love to make this show, and we can't do it without you. Can you support this show and give us your notes and your feedback and some money? So it was, it, it sort of went in, I think, in a position of, of strength. And so when uh, CBS responded, um, then it became a, a dance of diplomacy, as these things always are. And so we got the, the benefit of the massive amount of, um, you know, the, the great track record that CBS uh, has in how to do a show that can keep itself going for years and years and years. We learned uh, a lot from that. There were some growing pains as well. It wasn't always an easy adjustment, but everybody was learning as we went. If you could go back uh, to um, 2008, let's say, um, uh, season two, uh, what would you say to uh, Mark and Stephanie? Uh, I... I'd... I think you know what it, uh, I'd say. Do what you do what you did because uh, uh, you know. So here's Mark and Stephanie in season one. Like you get a call, like they're going to make the pilot for the show. You know, you're going to make the pilot, and you're like, ah, you know, we make like five dollars a year. That's so awesome. Um, and and then we shot the pilot, and then we got a call. You know, one evening from from Bill and Amory, who had gone down with the pilot and showed it to CBS, and and uh, they said, you know, I remember Amory said. Okay, guys. Like, oh my God! So CBS is picking up the show, and so we're like, "Wow, that sounds great!" And 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 it was great, you know, because we have family that that are from the states, and like we grew up watching that network, and we grew up watching CTV, and it's like, "Wow, I can't believe we're gonna have a show that's gonna be on these two huge networks," you know. And then the reality of it kind of started to sink in, which is like, "Well, we wrote an okay pilot, but <laughs> we didn't have a lot else to go on. We had a second script, and we got really lucky. I think really lucky because." What happened was was Bill and Emery hired Tassie Cameron to come in and uh, and lead the writing room in the first year. And uh, we asked the dumbest questions, um, and she answered them all very graciously. And it's like, so, you know, she, she allowed us the space to, to still retain our own vision. So we were able to defer to her, to learn from the way she took notes on notes calls. Um, dumb questions like, so if another writer writes a script for your show, you know, how do you know whether you should rewrite the scene or not, right? <laughs> and it's, and it's, it's a silly question, but it's, it's a really important fundamental it's, question. It's an incredibly difficult one, yeah. And she said, well, if you think it makes it better, then do it. And if it doesn't, and it's just different because it's something different that you would have done, then don't. And, 
And so we learned a tremendous amount from her. We learned a lot from Bill and Anne-Marie as well, because we know we did a lot of research. This was going to be a gritty SWAT show. We knew what that world was like, because so we'd spend time with cops. And I remember in the third episode, we had an, uh, you know, a, a kid that, 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 that fell in with a, with a drug dealer and you know, gets caught in, in his apartment in a shootout. And we went to set, and it's like, this is like a really nice loft. I don't think this is where drug dealers really live. And like, well, no, everything has to look nice on TV. And actors have to be good actors. And, but they also have to represent and look good on network television because you're producing for CTV and CBS. Um, we learned many things about producing a episodic, self-contained story of the week. You know, And what we're doing now is, is a little bit different, but we cut our teeth on a show where you were told in the first season, okay, the first six episodes, every episode you need to think of as your pilot. You need to pretend the audience has never uh, seen the show before. You need to reintroduce every character. And we're like, oh, that sounds like a drag. But yeah, yeah, we'll do that. So we did that. And then after the six episodes, they say, well, actually, it's the whole 13 episodes. You've got to do that. And by the way, we might just switch the order of any of these episodes around at any time. So like, we didn't know how to make a procedural episodic um, TV show, and they sure as heck showed us how to do it. And then in the second season, because I know what you're digging for, James Hurst, you were in that room with us. I was there. Um, in the second season, we, uh, we had a phone call. Tassie uh, moved on to work on Ricky Blue and work on her own projects. Um, so Steph and I were left in a very green position of leading the writer's room uh, with Anne-Marie and Bill working as creative producers. And um, we had a phone call with CBS, and we remember being told, you know, don't think just because you got a second season that you can do more with your characters. If you get to season five, then we'll the talk. The memories. The memories yeah. are fun. And so we're like, okay. And we realized in the second season of a show, of a moderately, very moderately successful show on a U.S. network, it's not about patting you on the back and saying, good stuff, just keep doing what you're doing. It's like, how can we bump up your numbers? Because we want them to be higher. And so you change executives. Everyone wants to, you know, everyone knows what worked on the last show they did, and so they try to bring it to your show. And many of what was brought to us to implement into Flashpoint was stuff that gave it the legs to go for 75 episodes. And if we hadn't had that tutelage, if we hadn't um, listened very closely, if we hadn't come close to being pushed off our own show because we couldn't wrap our brains around the fact that if you have a SWAT team, they shouldn't break up and go looking for blood spatters or, you know, go investigating. And, you know, it's a SWAT team. You're called to a single incident. You stay on that, that call and you stay together until the call's over. And then we watched House and here's a team of doctors leaving the hospital and breaking into people's houses and looking into their, you know, kitchen cupboard to yeah. see what kind of poison they may have had. But even House... I think stop doing that to a certain degree, right? That's that's one of the real challenges with with a show like Flashpoint, and uh, is that of course you want to explore because the, these are uh, SWAT uh, officers who are under the most incredible pressure. So the potential for character drama is so rich, and of course Flashpoint did mine that uh, very 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 successfully. But it is incredibly difficult to find opportunities for it without them seeming inappropriate. Uh, because there's there's someone with a gun to his head or a gun to someone else's head, and you know if if two of the SWAT people start arguing, they don't look like very good cops. So it it really was you know it's funny I've been on different shows and every writers room says this is the hardest show. Every writers room does it literally everyone and I always say no Flashpoint was the hardest. 
Um, but we, you know, I, I, I think, you know, we, we didn't really come to understand what, what show running was until we took this, until we took this show on and we learned gradually over the course of four or five years. And I think by maybe the fourth and fifth season, we, we had come to a point where we could take, we felt you, we, you could, were taking we knew leadership what we were doing role, a bit more. Right? Yeah. Yeah. By the end of, uh, yeah, but it was, it's a hard road. It's beginning. hard. It's hard making a, a television show and. You know, we had we were supported by really, really strong senior writers along the way, including you. Saved our sanity for two years. Yeah, thank you. Well, it was it was a great uh, a great pleasure uh, to work on that show. Um, there's there's so much we could talk about uh, with Flashpoint, but um, want to move it along too. I mean, one one question I, I have, uh, I think maybe others do as well. Um, it's 2013, Flashpoint's wrapped, and uh, it, it it is a a big hit. Uh, and uh, I know Hollywood's calling. Um, were you uh, tempted to put the house in Oakville on the market and, and really make a permanent move down to uh, Tahoe? Because I know, I know they were calling. It, it would only make sense to do that if we were doing that with the wild hopes that maybe one day in the States we could have our own show. But we've got that going on here. We've got you know, world-class talent pools in performers, in Art, artists and designers and musicians and composers and sound engineers we've got you can't ask for you know better support in every dimension for something that you would create here we wouldn't have more freedom there we would have more sunshine maybe um, but we don't see Canada as a stepping stone to success we see Canada as home success mm-hmm. happens here depends how you want to define yes. it but. yes round of applause yes <laughs> But I think we're also we're, we're telling fundamentally Canadian stories, and if we weren't armed with that during Flashpoint, I don't know what kind of a good time we would have had. We we would have calls with the American uh, networks where in the first season where where the notes we would get would be, you know, well, you know, why is it such a big deal that he shot that guy? Why is he so upset? Why is he so upset about that? And we're like, well, you know, we have a different kind, we different way of, of policing here. There are far fewer deaths at the hands of SWAT teams. Um, and every cop that we've talked to here has said they're trained to shoot their weapons. They're not trained to kill people. And I think part of that is a cultural divide, but also part of it is that we were just going for a different, a different take on what it is to be a cop than you see on U.S. shows. Because also if you're speaking from an authentically Canadian point of view, you're seeing things differently from the way they've been seen before. And specifically, like in, in, in 1942, you're at a very interesting shift in history from uh, Britain being a dominant colonial power of the world to starting to to crumble and, and fall to its knees. And you've got the U.S., which is gathering strength. It's, it's getting its own imperial forces together, and they're really sort of at a tipping point. And Canada's right in the middle trying to juggle both powers and try to navigate things to keep, you know, democracy alive. and keep. So that is a Canadian point of view. And the, the British could not tell this story, and the Americans could not tell this story. This is ours. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and you guys are really going to see that uh, in X Company. Um, well, that, and that was very, very fascinating what you were just saying, which, which brings me to my next question, which I know from working with you guys. Uh, you love research. Um, can you talk about uh, how you use research and also how you use consultants? And I happen to know uh, from reading the uh, materials that you had a, a number of visitors uh, to uh, X Company's writer's room, some people who are very intimately involved. So, so if you could talk about research and talk about how you use consultants. Um, we, uh, we were... Um, <sighs> There's just so much to read. You could read until, you know, 50 years from now. So you have to be selective. But 
we, you begin with reading, you begin with one, one thought connecting to the next, but one sort of starting point for us was the website of, of Camp X, which all of you should go and visit for sure, and the man in charge of that is Lynn Philip Hodgson, who is the uh, um, top uh, Canadian um, uh, researcher and specialist on, in the area, has written many books on the subject. Um, and he, he, he came into the writer's room and spent some time with us and, and uh, walked us through a PowerPoint presentation of the inside stories, many of which never were able to be published. Um, so he was a great resource. But he was with us for one intense day, and we were able to kind of follow up with him. But we didn't have him by our side the whole time. We did make a choice uh, fairly early on to, um, to take some liberties. Um, there are no characters who are specifically based on Intrepid or on uh, Ian Fleming or on, um, because as soon as you've got one history-based character, then it's sort of, then you've set a level where, well, that person was never actually studying at the camp at the same time as that person was there, so that's not quite true. We decided we're going to take liberties uh, all over the place. We've made Camp X a command center, which in reality it wasn't. We are training females, which we're not certain that they ever did at Camp X. Um, so we draw enormously from uh, the original documents to make it as authentic as possible, but we also take um, some uh, creative uh, liberties from there as well. Because we're, we're looking, you know, in our research, not only at Camp X, but at, at, at other, um, the experiences of spies that, that come from, from Britain, um, the experience of people being inside the resistance in occupied Europe. And our, I guess our philosophy was... Um, there, there are lots of places you can go to get the facts. There are lots of books you can go to to get the facts. And that is the job of those books, is to be incredibly accurate and to not get anything wrong. Um, but what those books don't give you often, sometimes they do, is they don't give you what the emotional uh, perspective may have been of, of living in that world and being an agent or you know being at a top-secret spy training facility where no one knows what your job is. And so... We want to try and reflect kind of what, what we imagine is, is more of the emotional experience and, uh, and then point people towards, okay, this is what Camp X actually was. It's an amazing place. And once you start going down the little rabbit hole of research, you will find 10 stories that are probably more interesting than the one we chose to tell. But I don't think that's true. Uh, well, and I think that's really what I love about uh, you guys as writers and, and creators is that... Um, with Flashpoint as well, it, it came. There, there was a lot of research, and there, and there was a lot of um, things that came from consultants. But then you kind of throw it away, and then you focus on things like um, what it feels like if your boots are too tight, uh, you know, uh, or, or the argument you might get in the case of Flashpoint, the argument you get into because the guy didn't gas the van, and you're on the way to a call, and someone's got a gun, uh, and and this really shows up in in X Company as well, and uh, it, it's what I love so much about. Your work, it, it breathes, it's alive. And um, which brings me to my next question. Uh, you, I mean, you both have very successful careers as actors, um, both of you. Um, what, uh, what, what do you think that brings to you as, as, uh, as writers from an acting perspective? Because I always process the thing I'm talking about as, as an acting thing, that you guys are sort of, I always imagined you guys, and I don't know if this is true, although we did write a script together, uh, that you're acting when you're writing. And I don't know if that's actually true. But uh, I, I wonder if... Acting uh, like we know what we're doing. Oh, yeah, 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 that's true. But if you're actually acting the scene out because you're, you know, your stuff, it, it breathes and is very present. Is, is this something... Uh, I think it's not true? so much acting as trying to just exist emotionally in the moment. You know, the, sometimes we can get 
emotional when we're standing in front of the whiteboard and, and beating something out. And you know you've hit on a story turn that's going to be put your heart in your throat, and then that chokes you up. And, and it's good when those things happen because, you know, sometimes we maybe become more tenacious with a story point than we otherwise would because it gets hard to figure out the way to sell that emotional moment and how do you construct the architecture of the story around it. And it's, you know, we'll keep digging to find it because we know we want to get back to that emotional kernel and the emotional truth. And that's often the moment that people will seize on when they, when they watch the episode and when they, when they respond to it. Um, I don't know what else. Uh, I think one of the main things that, that being a, an actor or a former actor has taught me is how, how often you don't need to have the words to express something, how, how much can be said without words. Um, how much can be said in in, understa- in understatement or in under uh, or in subtext, um, where an entire scene can be spoken at this level but is felt at this level, and that stuff that actors love to do and they love to mess with that and they love to be flawed, conflicted, and and confused and fallible and these super spies. I mean, it's it's hilarious and also fun to see this show marketed as you know five secret weapons and they're all standing there like heroes and they are heroes, but they are so. They make mistakes. They, they, you know, they, they drop equipment. They're not able to, you know, there is no mission that goes well or that goes flawlessly. Everything is kind of in the middle of falling apart and they have to compensate and think fast on their feet. Like, they are fallible and flawed and confused. And, and as an actor, you love to perform those, so you love to write that stuff for actors to perform. And we happen to be blessed with a goldmine of lead actors that, they, that are just... As, as you'll see, there's nothing they can't do. They're just wonderful, and you can't take your eyes off them. But there's one more thing I, I would say that in having a background as an actor, and particularly as an actor who doesn't get cast as much as that actor would like, <laughs> 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 then, then you, you audition a lot, and in the course of auditioning a lot, you read a ton of scripts, and you, know, you spend a ton of time on set, so that's useful. You absorb, you know, maybe you're a little more camera crew focused than, than behind the video village monitors focused. Um, but you learn a lot by by reading, reading good scripts, reading bad scripts, and you know both of us read dozens and dozens and dozens of scripts every year, and that was a great education that any actor or writer should obviously do. That's great. I remember working with these guys, uh, and I think it was my first script for Flashpoint, and uh, uh, they gave I, they, their notes are incredible. Um, one note you gave that that uh, was um, it was very simple. You said just breathe through the dialogue. And, and I'll admit at first, I think Dan is here, and I think I said, Dan, what, what does that mean, breathe through the dialogue? But um, once I sort of absorbed it, um, it kind of clicked in for me, and I do it all the time now. Uh, I like to think of it as sort of, as, as almost performing on the page, or, or being alive, and, and I think that's something that you'll, you're, you're really gonna see in this episode, uh, and, and it's a real hallmark of your work, um, is that it's, it's very alive, it's very present, and you're drawing drama and suspense from uh, mistakes, you know, uh, in, in a really, really brilliant way. Um, I, I want to put you guys on the spot uh, just for a moment. Um, you're a writing duo. I, I sometimes, I've, I've had a few actually writing partnerships, uh, one with my wife. Um, so, uh, Mark, uh, talk, talk to me about Stephanie as a writer, and uh, what, do you, what do you love about collaborating with her? Um, I love that she will never let go of, of anything. She's um, tenacious with every incarnation of production, from conceiving stories to uh, writing the story and writing the draft that the two of us send out into the world, um, to the rewrites that happen the days before we shoot, 
to the quality control that we ensure happens in every script that comes through our writing room department. Um, through production and being on the floor, especially in this show, and not settling for moments that she felt were false or that might not work in post, um, and through into uh, post-production. I kind of, I'm, you know, I guess I talk about that emotional moment at the at the whiteboard, and maybe that's all I'm, I'm good at. I don't know. It, it's <laughs> like I, 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 like, I like the construction of the season and the characters. I like... You know, what are the big moments in the story? What's going to drive us through? And then, you know, as you know, I could, then we rely on, like, incredibly talented writers to help us figure out all the story beats that are going to get there and that make sense and that don't stink. And, um, and, 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 I, and I love being in post, and I love, um, I love looking at the first edits and saying, okay, let's do this kind of macro thing and that. And, but then after a while, I lose, I lose patience. And it's Steph who, who has the tenacity to sit there with the editors for you know, 12 hours straight and say, we can do this little thing with this scene. We can do this little thing. And it makes everything pop and fizzle to the surface and, and somehow better. That's great. Stephanie, it's your turn. What, uh, <laughs> what do you most dislike? No, what do you most love about uh, working with Mark? Um, I think... Uh, Mark has a really amazing story brain and he's got natural leadership qualities as well so when it comes to like the very earliest stages of the conception of the whole season and then the conception of the whole episode and then the conception of the whole scene he's got all of these macro things going and he he can think and feel obviously he's very emotionally led as well feel his way through them in a way that um that I don't think I can I think I'm more fussy and analytical so I'm a little bit more like the crossword puzzle nerdy thing of of post I love solving post problems in post I love finding solutions that seem impossible but in the sort of the um in the broader strokes and in the more emotional lyrical big picture strokes and and keeping in mind why we why we're doing this why we care why we love it that stuff that comes from him that's amazing um let's talk a little bit about um talk, talk a little bit about the writing room um how, how do you go about staffing your room? How do you, how do you go about uh, putting that team together? Um, we read a lot of stuff, and we try to stay, we try to circulate in the community and stay aware of, you know, who's, who's doing what and who cares about what. And sometimes it's, I mean, there are so many strong writers in Canada. Sometimes it's just a matter of the right uh, chemistry of this person with that person and that person, no matter how experienced they may be, may not quite be the right match because then we've got, like, two bass players in the show and we only need, or it's like a baseball team. You don't need... Mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. three shortstops necessarily so you need to have someone for each function who is the best at that function and on top of that to look for a sense of of alchemy among all of them um it's, it's a, a lot of reading and a lot of just trying to be aware as i think they call person. it casting the room yeah is the, is the term um well, yeah and one of the tasks of the showrunner of course is to, is to lead the room and uh, uh writers uh, have a complex psychology um uh, you know, leading a room can it can be a bit like herding cats, or it can also be like trying to wrestle a bone from a pack of wild dogs. What's uh, what's your strategy for leading the room? <laughs> we can go back to the obviously. Flat. Our, clearly, our lack of strategy That's is what right. is yeah. causing a problem in our writing room. Connect, respect, protect, <laughs> man. <laughs> well, I, I think that what we do is we really, you know, and it, whether it's in the writing room or or with our production team or in post, we our philosophy is. So here's our sandbox that we made, you know, and here's the toys we've got in it. And we're all going to get in there. We're going to play together. And we're not going to restrict you from bringing your own stamp 
to the kind of story and bring us the kind of story that, that you want to tell. Like we're, we're hungry for that. We're hungry to, to, um, you know, we, we don't like rewriting. So, you know, the more a writer can, can give us the better. Um, I think that because we do feel our way through stories emotionally, uh, sometimes it can be frustrating for the writers that work with us because we'll do a lot of sitting there and we'll listen and we'll let, you know, we hire smart, smart, smart people so that we can sit there and listen for them to come up with the solution. They go, yeah, that's smart. And then, you know, maybe we'll torque it or, or maybe we won't. And, you know, the net result of that is if the room can't come up with it is that we, we have to own it and we have to go uh, home at the end of the day and, and, and figure it out. But, um, I think our other philosophy in the room is to uh, try and grow writers. Um, it's really, really important for us to do that. We are creative in the way we look for writers. Um, we have worked with writers that haven't produced any television. Um, we have been loyal to writers that that um, have been with us, you know, as story coordinator, our story coordinator Dan from Flashpoint. Um, was a, a huge um, support to us during that show, and we brought him with us to X Company, and um, you know he'll be he'll be writing this show. Uh, it's yeah, and and I, I just think you want to work with people that you you like, and you don't want to be working people too hard. And we all want to go home at six, and so I don't think we're we're slave drivers or anything like that. No, I I would uh, definitely confirm that you are not. Um, definitely not. Um, I think everyone's excited to see the pilot. So, um, uh, is there anything you'd like to say uh, before as, a, as, as an introduction? Um, well, just that we're really nervous. <laughs> well, you shouldn't be. You shouldn't be nervous. Uh, I'm, and these guys are going to love it. And uh, I was really blown away. I really was. I thought it was a, a master class in uh, suspense. Uh, while also being, um, I hope you guys got tissue. I'm not. I'm really not kidding because it really is very, very, very emotional. And everyone's going to be crying. So uh, I think we're ready. Let's let's watch the uh, the first episode. Is this this is the first public screening? Uh, so how do you guys feel? Well, my my dad saw it on the weekend, and he's here again now. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I love it. I have a pitch for you for a spinoff. I think we should follow Annie and uh, the old resistance guy. And every week she goes undercover. And at some point she has to say, Heil Hitler. Yeah, she's amazing. Um, Honor Knifsi. She's a, a, a young British uh, actress. And uh, the elderly gentleman there was played by actually one of Hungarian's most beloved uh, stage actors. We did not realize this when we cast him. We would have given him more to do, but we were filming, and there was this small crowd started to to gather, and we think, well, that's kind of odd because no one really knows what this show is all about, and it turns out they were all there for him. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he's a, a, a nice man. Also the Hungarian voice of Homer Simpson, apparently. So. Wow. Uh, we're talking about cast, so let's keep talking about cast. Can we talk about... Uh, you have an amazing cast. And I was very happy to see uh, Warren Little from uh, Luther. I've got the right guy. Warren Brown. Yeah. Warren Brown, sorry. Uh, who you guys might recognize from Luther. Uh, I mean, just a fantastic cast all around. Can we talk about uh, the casting process? Sure. It was uh, exhaustive. Um, like, I'd lost count of how many people. Probably about 500 actors for the f five leads. Yeah, yeah. It was... Uh, 
and there, the, you know, there are a lot of extraordinary actors to to look at and and choose from. But there was a, something so specific that each of these um, actors brought that we that was like that's it. We can stop right now. Like um, uh, Aurora, in particular, there is something so classic and I can't it's hard to describe without gushing I just well, think she's strong and vulnerable and right she's got both she's got like that that fiery passion but she's also fragile and so 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 real and I love that she's got just the smallest flavor of uh, Quebec accent and we we talked about it off the top and like don't do not erase that don't make any effort to erase that because uh, you know the uh, the spies who came from Quebec, for obvious reasons, they were the ones who paid off so much, so much in France. We wanted to honor that as well. So, um, you know, she's just a, you know, I can't say enough about her. Um, and uh, Jack Lasky, who plays Alfred. Alfred was very, very hard to cast. There's a kind of sensuality and fragility and vulnerability in him without being kind of the classic nerd either. Um, he, You've seen him at his most vulnerable, but he goes on to become... To, to really blossom and come out of his shell and discover his strengths and to not be afraid of feeling and not be afraid of sensing and not being afraid of remembering. Um, and he's just a wonderful uh, British actor, trained, uh, classically trained, and uh, just a very incredible work ethic and just a sweetheart of a guy, a really, really nice guy. Um, and Warren, yeah. Warren, you mentioned, and, and uh, you know, I, we we're very familiar with Warren's work from Luther, um, also really another great British show called Occupation. And um, he's, uh, he's an example of the, you know, you cast an actor and, and the part grows along with him. Um, Warren has a, a, a great sense of humor and that was something we started to write into the, into the show. Um, Dustin Milligan. Well, so before we leave Warren, he is, um, we needed somebody who was very uh, athletic, who looked comfortable in his body, who had a natural kind of power and strength to him. And not only did he, perform a beautiful, heartbreaking audition, but it turns out he's a two-time world Thai kickboxing champion. So we get to feature his kickboxing skills a little bit <laughs> more <laughs> later in the season, but um, like, what are the odds of finding a, a combo like that? It was a real... We struck gold with, with Warren as well. Mm -hmm. and, and with Dustin and, 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 and Connor. I mean, we could mm -hmm. gush about all of them. Somebody asked us to describe them in, in, in one word, I think, each of them in, in one word, and it's you know, it's impossible. I think the, the main thing about all five of them is that um, they have an incredible work ethic. They is There's not a prima donna among them. Um, they uh, are incredibly intelligent and passionate uh, about the work. And, uh, and Dustin's from Yellowknife, and, uh, and Connor is from Toronto. He's been acting since he was about six years old, I think. Yeah, he, was, he played uh, Russell Crowe's um, son in Cinderella Man, I think was his big breakout role. Um, but he's, uh, he's one of the most natural... Uh, talented actors I've ever seen. He's amazing. And he, he learned Morse code as well to get yeah. into the part. That's amazing. Uh, and uh, it, rounding out your cast is Hugh Dillon, uh, who we all know from Flashpoint and, and uh, Durham County, and oh my God, so many things. Um, he's a, a very interesting dude, uh, Hugh Dillon. And uh, um, the, what I loved about working with him on Flashpoint was that he's, he's obviously you know, got this punk rock vibe to him, but he's incredibly precise. So it's like this incredible contradiction. I think it shows up on screen. And uh, he, you know, the, he'd call, right? Uh, I don't know if he still does this. Um, call you uh, usually before 11, usually, but not always, uh, with, uh, with notes on the script. And, uh, you know, you pick up the phone. It was like, James, it's Hugh. Great fucking script, man. Great fucking script. Really, really like the script, uh, 
uh, aisle 13 that I see you wrote. And the, but then he have these incredibly precise notes uh, because he has to be off book and he's, he's unbelievably prepared. Um, can you talk a bit about uh, working yeah. with him and your collaboration with him? Yeah, he has an incredible uh, work ethic, and he's one of those guys where if he's not working hard on something, he doesn't know where to put himself. So when he's working on your show, he's working hard on your show, which is why he's making sure that he's rock solid before he gets to set, why he's gone through every single line, and he's had all those conversations you know, with the writer or the, or the showrunner um, before he gets to the day. Uh, you know, for us, it was... You know, our one of our first instincts was to to cast Hugh in that part, and uh, then our second instinct was ah, we can't do that because we need to break away from Flashpoint and do something a little bit different. And so, you know, we considered all kinds of other actors, and then at the end of the day, we just came back to it has to be Hugh um, because he's just so inherently right for the part. And one of the things we tried to do in this show is to give it a kind of a contemporary. Uh, vibe, uh, contemporary feeling. So the hair, oftentimes, is, is lived in and loose. The wardrobe is is loose. Um, you have contemporary, contemporary music as well. Music. Like uh, reminded me of Peaky Blinders does something similar. That's right. And 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 Hugh brings a contemporary presence to the screen. He's not, uh, you know, he's not playing Bill Stevenson. Um, we wanted someone that was going to. Uh, have a different energy, I think, because we wanted to pull away from direct connections to actual people. Um, and he's just a, I mean, he has screen presence to die for. There's a, a sense of um, danger to him, I think. You would not want to get on his dark side. But there's also an extremely nurturing side where he has to handpick people who are just as likely as not to to die within, I think, six weeks was the average life expectancy in the field. So you're asking people to step out of their lives and into into the field where you have no protection. You have no protection of a uniform. If you're a spy, you are tortured and shot and hung from a meat hook. It's that simple. Um, and he cares for each of these, and he, he is crushed every time one of them doesn't come back. So there is this wonderful sort of avuncular nurturing side, but there's also the badass and he's always got a bit of that undercurrent to him. Yeah, that's why we love him. Uh, speaking of, of, of long-standing creative relationships, um, we talked about David Rizzi before, who is a, a brilliant, brilliant director, and he directed this pilot, and uh, a, a number of other episodes, I believe. Uh, can you talk a bit about uh, your relationship with him and what you like about working with him? Um, well, he's, you know, on Flashpoint, he, he established the tone of that show. He came in and directed the pilot, as you know, and he directed often the first and last episodes of each season because those tended to be the more ambitious ones. Uh, he would come in midway through the season and we would throw him the more uh, production unfriendly scripts to shoot because we knew he'd be able to handle it. And as a result of, you know, that collaboration, Stephanie and I have obviously often wrote those same scripts, the first and the last episodes. Um, we love working with him. He's the kind of director that uh, just makes everything better. His first pass through the script, I mean, it's funny because we wrote the script and we're like, oh, blowing up bridges and like going to Europe is not going to be pretty, you know, talking to producers and directors about this one. Um, so David was out on the ground about a week before I got out there. I went out a little ahead of Stephanie and I said to her, you know, I'm just dreading it. I'm going to get there. He's going to be so mad at me and <laughs> that we gave him the script to do. And so we got there and I, he, he walked into my office and he literally shouted at me for an hour about how unproducible this script was and then you know you kind of listen and get through it and start to joke around it and figure out how you're going to blow up a bridge in in Hungary which turns out to be Serbia but he elevates 
he 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 has a keen um, a keen nose for what is false in a script, and he has a very keen eye on how to tell a story economically. And one of the reasons you can give him big scripts is because he can tell two stories in one shot. Um, he also knows how to dig down for the moments that you miss, and he finds the more amazing scenes, I think, in the script. Well, little details like, like Harry running out of wire and dropping the wire, that was his idea. And sort of having to go under the bridge that's about to explode on you, that was, that was him as well. The, the final scene where they're all letting off steam um, and drinking themselves almost into oblivion, which has a bit of a contemporary feel to it, I think... It felt like a writer's room to me. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Very much so. Um, that was inspired by stories that he told of near-death experiences that he'd had out on the mountains of, you know, some the Alps or something, and he nearly died. And he and the people he were he was with uh, would come back and just drink to achieve that kind of euphoria where you're you're just so incredibly alive. Um, a lot of a lot of really poignant moments came from him. He's just got such a, a huge heart as well. Which connects with your writing, I think, because um, you, you write that way, and there's also so many of the little details that, that are in the script. And, uh, you know, for me, it's the, the boots. Uh, and it was, uh, it was just brilliant, too, because it was a very Mark and Stephanie moment with, oh, the boots don't fit, you know? So it's it sort of, a, you connect viscerally with the, with the character in that moment, but then you pay it off, and you actually turn it into plot, and that's when I uh, go, these guys, that's, that's just incredible. Um, and, and it just reminded me too, and, and it's so important for the for the writers in the room that uh, a plot is is character, you know, and you really have to look at it that way. And um, so you're kind of you're, you're putting the audience in the mindset of the character at that moment, but you're also going to be advancing the plot. And and I think that's what you know. I've seen this now a few times, and um, uh, there's a lot of little details that uh, that pop for me. But I think what's what's great about what you guys do is that you ratchet the tension so un, uh, almost unbearably right towards the end and then you provide this incredibly cathartic release of uh you know a, a, a mother sacrifice i mean she's just unbelievably moving a mother sacrificing herself um and you know we really feel for annie I mean, it's heartbreaking poor little annie uh so you know you brought the, the audience to this incredible fever pitch of of, of of adrenaline as uh our friend used to say uh and then you provide this amazing cathartic release, um, which I think is, is quite amazing. And I, and I think, uh, I thought that's what you did a wonderful job in this pilot. So uh, kudos again to you. Um, I think we should open up uh, the floor for, for some questions. I'm sure you guys got lots of, lots of questions. Don't be shy. Oh, and someone, just to explain, someone will bring the microphone I do see people waving, but uh, we will have people bring the microphones to you. Because this is being recorded for a, a podcast. I'm not sure if you guys, if everyone knows that. Just make sure. Just from sitting here in the audience, I can tell that you, Stephanie, and you, Mark, love what you do. And that's to be applauded. Now, as to Camp X, I can see this really going for a number of years. Uh, and I'm wondering what thought you've given to that. Are you going to take it up to the years of Igor Gazenko and his daughter living at the camp and so on? Are you going to get into the Janosha Hotel, the Blue Swan Hotel, uh, Ian Fleming, Hoover, Stevenson, uh, Fleming, the whole uh, uh, crew 
hanging out in those spots in Oshawa, etc. Uh, you've got so much to work with and you're off to just a fabulous start and I just applaud everything that you've put into this. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Um, the, the other little piece of truth that we uh, end up weaving into the second episode is the um, uh, the Bowmanville uh, prisoner of yeah that's right the, yeah <laughs> so there's a prisoner of war camp just a half hour away from Camp X and it's crammed with Germans and so there's some stories inspired I mean there's some stories inspired by truth um, that we get to borrow the Germans from that camp for for our own purposes. Um, In reality. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, for interrogation training, you get bring in the real guy in the real uniform, and you learn how to how to withstand uh, extremes. Um, we, uh, as we mentioned, we're, we're probably not going to be name dropping any of the real historical figures who who were there, but we do want to um, uh, use as much of the the authenticity of the camp as as we can. We've been very proactive with CBC from the very beginning, and we've said to them how important it is for us to be able to provide. Um, people that watch the show with a means to understand the real stories and the real people that went there. It's always shocking to me that this story isn't taught on every school curriculum across the country and not just in the curriculums out in Durham and Oshawa. It's, uh, so, so CBC, I think, is, is quite committed into, into uh, telling the real story behind uh, Camp X. And then as writers, we'll keep looking for those stories too. Like how do we bring um, the Bowmanville um, camp more into the story? You know, in our original scenes that we had developed a feature script years ago and, and we had scenes set in the in the Genosha. And, you know, so those are, we want to figure out a way to do it. We've also got this challenge of how do you uh, keep bringing these, because the reality, of course, is that once a spy is trained, they go out into the field and they don't go back. Uh, to the camp, so we're looking for creative ways to to keep the story of the camp alive at the same time through Hugh Dillon's character, through Sinclair. Um, we'll see how he navigates the relationships between the British and the Americans as we go through the story. And within the first three episodes, we see the agents um, returning to the camp, um, which is a, a bit of a creative liberty again. But we wanted to really root them in that world and in that training that occurs there before they get sent off into the field. But you know, we're uh, extremely mindful of uh, people that have personal connections uh, to the camp. And it's part of the reason we're telling this story is because, you know, our our grandfathers and our great-grandmothers and our great-uncles um, are leaving us. And so we're left with with textbooks and websites and Wikipedia entries. And what we're trying to do is tell the emotional human stories that were behind their experiences when they can't share them directly with us anymore. Hello. Um, I just wanted to say incredible job. It's, I'm so excited to see the rest of it. Um, but what I was wondering is, do you have any advice for younger people who are looking to kind of be um, the next generation of storytellers in Canada and like take on a um, show, create like creating a show and be a showrunner? Um, at the risk of sounding terribly cliche, follow what you love and do it. Do it for yourself. Um, don't sort of try to imagine, you know, what is the marketplace looking for right now? Well, this is really trendy right now, so I'm going to try to develop something, because by the time you've achieved that, which takes such a long time, 
another trend will have surfaced. That'll be gone, you know, in the pile along with other things of that style. Follow what you love. We uh, we had started developing this perfect memory guy, synesthesia guy, a long, long time ago, like like we said. And there was a long stretch when we um, had, we took a detour through Flashpoint, and we had thought, well, this is going to stay on the shelf because there's other TV shows about perfect memory people like Unforgettable and there's synesthesia has started to surface a little bit in in pop culture but for a while we thought we're not going to be able to come back to this because it's sort of been done the the, you know the detective with the perfect memory but then we sort of swung full circle and said no we're doing it differently we're doing it emotionally we're doing the burden of memory but on a larger scale this person is not such a freakishly different creature than we are. We are all afraid. We are all afraid to step outside what's familiar to us. We are all afraid to have our hearts broken. We are all afraid to feel something that we'll never be able to unfeel. Um, so if you have, I mean, the synesthesia thing is kind of personal to me, and you know, find what's personal to you, and that makes you irreplaceable in every stage of its development, so that somebody doesn't sort of say, thanks for the nice idea, we'll take it with someone who's more experienced than you. Make yourself irreplaceable if possible, and the only way to do that is to love it like crazy. And I think the best people on the business side of television really respect um, passion and authenticity and a love for the subject. And we learned that in one of the first... uh, meetings we had with Yvonne Fitzan at CTV, you get to the top of the pile and these meetings become higher and higher stakes. And we had a meeting with uh, Anne-Marie and ourselves and, and, and um, we thought the meeting would be about casting and the business side of things. But a lot of that meeting was about Yvonne turning to us and saying, what um, cop novels are you reading? And um, what cop shows do you like to watch? And did you spend time with these guys? Yes, we did. Well, did you like them? Would you hang out with them? What do you think? What did you think of the guns that you saw? And we're like, well, I, I don't know. Like, I think I'm kind of a pacifist, but I felt like 12 years old when I was in there again. And, you know, you tell him. And, and I realized it was he was looking for passion for the story, and not only because he was going to commission a pilot. He wasn't looking for the passion to commission a pilot. He was looking for the passion that was going to sustain us through 75 episodes. And I only realized that in hindsight, and I, and I think it's very, very smart. And I think that um, we've enjoyed really strong relationships with the two Canadian networks that we've worked with because they recognize our passion for the subject, the level of research that we've brought into it, and um, they've given us opportunities and space to be creative because of that. And when we read material from up-and-coming writers, it's what we're looking for. We, like Steph said, we're not looking for what people think is going to sell. We're looking for something that comes from the gut, and it doesn't always have to be a TV hour drama. Sometimes it's a feature. Sometimes it's watching their short. Hello. Uh, uh, just a question about um, how you deal with, uh, I guess, developing your characters. Because what kind of amazed me with that was that you had this crazy, action-packed, like, hour-long uh, yet, like, through it, I don't know when it happened, but I care about the characters. I know who they are. Like, there was no scene where he stepped aside and said, okay, now is a character moment. We're going to spend a few minutes with the characters. It's all in the action, and, the, and like, as the story's unfolding, so, but you still care about it. Like, I'm just curious uh, yeah. how, how, you, uh, how you approach the, the, that kind of development. I think um, character comes to the surface most when you're under most pressure. So in a situation that is that starts off completely out of control and gets less and less in control as, as it goes, people, um, you find out what you're made of, I guess. Um, and we only really touch the surface of each character, but I think what we touched in common between all of them is what is their ethical arithmetic? 
What is their conscience? How does that work? For Neil, it's perfectly straightforward. He is equipped with enough hate to last him for the rest of the war, and that's going to change. But he is absolutely certain about what the rules are and what his function is within that. Tom is unable to take a life. He's, he, he, can, he can convince people with words, but to actually... Um, the, the words versus the deeds are a very different thing from him. He's got a long journey to go on as well. Um, and uh, Harry has never, like, as Sinclair said, he, he's never stayed out past curfew. So everybody's being pushed uh, to their limit, and I think there's something very appealing and vulnerable about that. And I think I'm just guessing that as, as you watch a character struggling with something and you imagine yourself in their position, you don't know what you would do, but you're glad they did what they did because they're, they're sort of a step ahead of you or a step braver, a step smarter. I think that kind of hooks you onto their ride and then you go along on the ride with them. I mean, there's also shorthand, like the music is so emotionally powerful that, you know, you see a little girl with curly blonde hair, how are you gonna, not going to love her? I mean, there's some shorthand like that as well. But as far as um, these five leads, I think there's the natural charisma that these performers have, but also I think in each of them you just get a little a little spark of what makes them separate, uh, distinctive. I mean, it's every every writer knows it's the hardest part of writing the pilot is trying to set up those characters. And, you know, we also have an extremely expository scene in which Sinclair explains who everyone is and exactly what they do on the team. And, you know, I think we, we earn it only because we spent so much time watching them and investing in them along the way. And it would have been tempting to, to have done that at the outset so that we would have a sense of, you know, what their role is in the team earlier you, on. You must have been, sorry to make that cut up, but you must have been given that note. Um, can you put that? Because you have a scene that would normally go, and you'll, you'd get this in all the time, would go right up front, uh, where you, you're really showing everyone, you know, he does, Harry does this, he does this, he does this. Um, Hugh Dillon does say it early, but you actually show it later, uh, and I thought that was so brilliant, because I think it's Act 3. Um, so uh, is, were you given that note, and did you tell him to? No. No, and, no one and, gave you that note. No, and uh, you know, I I, mean, I think we self censored ourselves to some extent and, and gave ourselves that note and chastised ourselves for having that scene in the show. But um, you know, it's interesting because we 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 were developed at at, at CBC just as as time started to to change at the network, and we've had to learn over the course of the season how to not do that and how to resist the muscle that we developed during Flashpoint of the expositional dump off the top of the show where right. we say this is what we're going to be doing this is the case of the week and um and it took us you know a good three or four episodes to get over that in uh in this in this series but the network um cbc has become much more about character driven serialized shows and, and if anything they pushed us away from from doing that um very much to their credit that's great to hear and uh uh hi john how you doing um just to jump in too um into that because one thing I, I think what you guys do that is it's deceptive is that uh, and, and I remember this note you guys gave me on one of my scripts where it was uh, the script was about uh, the, the team invading racist Nazi terrorists I mean you just hate these guys and, uh, it, and it was an action thing where um, you know they're kicking down a door and they're, they're punching someone jumps out and they punch him and I wrote it as uh, two goons jump out <laughs> you may remember the note and, uh, and, I mean, these are Nazis, right? Uh, really horrible people. And, and you guys very smartly said, don't call them goons because it makes them clowns and they're not real. Uh, and uh, I was reminded of that while watching this because you, you've got, and I know this is comical to say nice SS officer, but 
you do have the SS officer who's human, who you connect with. And there's this great bit where he sort of just suddenly starts talking about his past. And he's like, I was going to be a doctor. You know, and, and it's kind of random, but it's real. You know, it really felt like almost like a documentary at that moment where this is a guy who's under pressure, who's upset, and is trying to prove to these characters that he's a real person. And he sort of tells them this random detail. And I think, you know, that, that just reminded me uh, when John was asking the question. That's very hard to do when you're writing because you get, we all get lazy. And you think, oh, you know, we don't, we don't need it. We already like the SS guy because he was nice. But you guys make every moment uh, very real and very present. And uh, they're real people you're watching. And I, and I think that's part of what makes it so economical because you care so much so fast about these people. So again, kudos to you. <laughs> more, more questions? I have a question for you. It was originally called Camp X, and it's now called X Company. So talk, talk about that. Titles are, are tricky, and they often change. So. Uh, do you want to go ahead? Um, yeah, we had, it's, it was very simple. It was just because there was a documentary out there by the same name, and, and they were proprietary about the title. So, so we decided to, uh, to change yeah, it. But we, I think we had always thought Camp X was always kind of a placeholder. And the more the story developed, the less it was about the camp itself. And the camp kind of anchors it, but at the same time, so much happens in the field, and it's, it is about a team of people. And so X Company felt more like, it felt more appropriate to what the show became as opposed to the, the location where it all started. But if you read the Morse code underneath X Company, then you... Then you know that it really says Camp X, yeah. <laughs> sneaky, very sneaky. How many meetings did you have about the title once you decided to change it? Oh, it took forever. Yeah, four or five billion. <laughs> yeah. It's the worst thing in the world is thinking up a title. As you know, it's, it's uh, yeah. <laughs> but then once you've chosen it, it's like, yeah. It's great. Like after two weeks and the rage and denial of, you know, every discarded title that got disapproved by everyone else. And, you know, then all of a sudden it's just the title and, and you go to love it. You couldn't go with X-Men because. No. <laughs> that's, that's right. X-rated. X-rated. Um, I'd just like to, you mentioned that the detail about uh, the German soldier in the kitchen starting to talk about being a doctor. Uh, and uh, we didn't feel that was a random uh, comment from him. It was a very real moment that revealed something about him about, you know, connecting with the little girl was one thing. It was very direct. But in that one, there was a real feeling of a sense of him being in a world that he doesn't quite understand or belong in, too, just like the characters were meant to support uh, and feeling kind of defensive. So the amazing thing is to... Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you figure out how, which detail to bring out on the run that will reveal something about that character that makes us feel like we know them better, like more than what they're saying, like we're feeling like we know them in a deeper way? How do you, how do you pick the element that you're going to bring out? I, I wish there were some kind of principle, but I don't know if there, there is one. Sometimes you're just reading a book or watching a documentary and something kind of stays with you. And I remember having read about how, you, you know, you can be if you can be under a great amount of pressure to, to join, uh, join up with the SS and get your uniform for, for family reasons because you want your family to be proud of you. Or it literally is the only way you can advance your studies and you hope you can come full circle and help humanity after this war business is over. It's, it's um, 
uh, one thing we were uh, read the, the two um, Germans that we see at the end whose voices we don't hear when they're opening the file and they're going to be on the trail of, from then on of, of, of the team. Um, one of them is uh, loosely inspired by a real Gestapo chief who was brilliant, uh, terrifying, funny, spooky, incredible real man who happened to have a Down syndrome child, which was not really acceptable uh, to the you know Aryan future of per perfect humanity. So even just that thing makes you kind of do a double take about, well, what, what would that mean to have to keep this a secret? And that ended up becoming a major part of the story as it unfolds, is the secrets that he has to protect as well. So nobody, even our, our nemesis, our arch enemy, is just a guy struggling between you know trying to honor the country he loves and having severe doubts about some of the extremes that his colleagues are going to. We do... Um, it's not because you know we don't always have one really mean Nazi and one friendly Nazi, but we do try to keep it as mixed as human beings are. And I don't personally believe in pure evil, and I also don't believe in pure virtue. And I think it's a lot more fun and interesting if everybody is dealing with a, a kind of arithmetic that none of us have to deal with in regular life. But when everything is heightened, when the stakes are that high, it's about, it's about the world. Um, then these things come to the surface. But it was also important for us to create a character that did have a black and white view of who... Mm -hmm who these Germans are. And so that's, that's, you know, one of the main aspects of Neil's character is that we've constructed a guy that just blindly hates and categorizes them all and paints them all with the same brush because then the fun you have with that is to, to figure out the points in the season where he has to humanize his first German and you know, how does he reconcile his role um, on a team where he's the heavy and he's the one that pulls the trigger and he's the one that's called on to kill people. How does, how does that change when he sees another dimension or experiences something beyond his experience. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, oh, question. Oh, hi. I just wanted to say beautiful, beautiful work. And just, I mean, the casting was so wonderful. Even that SS officer, the second you saw him, you could see in his eyes. You knew there was something different about him, a sensitivity. Um, my question, and I apologize because I came a few moments late, is um, what is your order for the first season? How many episodes, and how is it different than Flashpoint? And what's your experience like with that? Um, well, we're we're eight episodes um, for the for the first season. Um, we are different from Flashpoint in many ways. I, I, you know, I, on the broadest structural level, um, every episode of Flashpoint was self-contained. Um, the first three. Uh, or four um, episodes of this show are very self-contained, and then we start to loosen things up a little bit. The last two episodes are completely serialized, and by episode five, we're setting up things that happen um, in the future episodes. The ongoing character arcs are much more pronounced. I think in Flashpoint, um, the term we would use internally is that we developed character by the by the teaspoon in every episode. Eyedropper. The eyedropper. Yeah. eyedropper rather than the, uh, the, bucket. the bucket. And in this show, I think we're somewhere in between. And I think as we evolve, we'll probably, you know, we want to reflect the human experience of war, so we'll, we'll continue to become much more serialized. Um, and, and I think this, the pilot episode is, there's a, you know, it's not the only episode we have explosions. We have explosions in other episodes as well. But not every episode lives in this high adrenaline, very fast-paced uh, world. Flashpoint scripts were routinely 60, 65 pages, and between 85 and 110 scenes. Um, this show, I would say the pilot, is close to that. But by the time we got to the later episodes, we're down to a more conventional 54, 55-page script. And 
you know, anywhere between 50 and 70 scenes, which is not to say that we ever let the tension drop. We just find different ways to tell those stories, and that's part of being within this genre as opposed to a SWAT genre, is that you can live in the world of intrigue, tension, noir, suspense. Will I be discovered, you know, by the Germans um, on the floorboards above me? And, and in future episodes, you, you explore what's so great about espionage dramas is you explore how far are you willing to go, mm-hmm. you know? Um, are you willing to, uh, and this is something that's common for spies, are you willing to sleep with someone? Uh, how far will you go? Who, who are you going to kill? What, you know, what are these lines? And that's uh, the, the biggest difference between Flashpoint and our show is that in Flashpoint, there was a set of rules, right? And everything they did was dictated by the rules of when somebody points a gun, that's when you pull a trigger. And in this show, there are no rules. Everything is fair game, and they make it up on the fly. You know, yeah, Our heroes killed how many people in the pilot episode? versus the, the one or two in the first season. Yeah, it's sort of a, a Flashpoint turned inside out uh, because in, in Flashpoint, SWAT teams served the law, and here there is no law. We are the outlaws. Um, also in Flashpoint, the, the, the motto was keep the peace, and the only two people whose principle is keep the peace are collaborators. Look, I just want to keep the peace. The Germans are just professionals. I'm just doing what I can to you know, protect my town or doing what I can to protect my family. I'm doing this for someone else. I'm just trying to keep the peace. And these are the people who make fascism possible. So we, it's a complete reversal. We are, uh, there are no uh, rules. There are no things to follow. Every decision that you make, you carry with you. Um, every life you take is your responsibility because no one is going to approve you and give you like this is the only green light that they wait for <laughs> from then on they're just kind of set off on their own so you carry the responsibility and the burden of that a lot more yeah it seems to uh to tie it up i mean it, i think what i see in your work is is uh i think we just talked about this a flashpoint is is the human face of heroism and and uh finding the humanity in people who have to do the unthinkable and, and there's that great line that hugh dylan has uh, that great moment where he's talking about, um, you know, it tears me up every time I have to ask a young man to to potentially give his life, but I am uh, terrified by the idea of what happens if I don't. And then you go in on the the uh, the Nazi flags. Um, it's uh, a really incredibly moving uh, and suspenseful uh, pilot, and uh, I was delighted um, to take part in this. And uh, there you go. And and thank you. Uh, I think, again, we want to thank CBC and Temple Street Productions and Mark and Stephanie, of course, and also Tiff uh, Lightbox for, for providing this amazing venue for us. And uh, thank you so much, uh, everyone, for coming out. Thanks for listening to Writers Talking TV, the X Company edition. We'd love to hear from you, so email us at writerstalkingtv at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, log on to iTunes, give us some positive feedback, and help spread the word. Writers Talking TV is sponsored by the Writers Guild of Canada. Today's event was held at the TIFF Bell Lightbox in Toronto. The show's technical producer is Philip Vukovic. I'm James Hurst. Thanks for listening.